Welcome back to Everyday Holiness, a Faith Indie podcast brought to you by the Notre Dame Alumni Association. This is again your host, Dan Allen, Associate Director of Spirituality and Service, and very happy to have you with us this week. I'm pleased to welcome Megan Krasider as my guest this week. Megan is a 2003 grad of St. Mary's College, which is just across the way from Notre Dame. And she also got her master's in education through the ACE program at Notre Dame in 2005. So, Megan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to have you. So, give us some sense of your early years to start. Where are you from and what are some important early memories you have? So, I grew up in most of the Cincinnati area. We moved around a little bit before settling there when I was shortly before kindergarten, I guess. Mm -hmm. I am the oldest of five. Uh, We were packed pretty tightly together. My youngest brother was born shortly before I turned seven, which like now being a parent myself, I'm like, oh wow, my parents were (laughs) really busy there for a while. My dad worked for Procter & Gamble. My mom was home with us. And yeah, just remember we had close family, still close with my siblings now. Like I, my husband and I regularly talk about how our siblings were some of the greatest gifts that our parents gave us. And I'm really glad to have them in my life. And yeah. Well, it's a good thing to hold on to, especially if you've got lots of kids. That, yes. So that will be, we hope, each other's friends and, and confidants going on. In terms of your faith formation, mm-hmm. what were some important lessons of faith growing up in your family? You know, I just remember it being just a constant part of who we were. So Mass on Sundays was always a priority, Mass on Holy Days, sacramental preparation, My parents were involved with ministries at our parish, so I just remember seeing that as it was the norm. Mm -hmm. We lived in a pretty fast-growing suburb, and so actually the parish that is now my what I would consider my home parish. My parents' parish still to this day was founded in 1989. Yeah. For a while, we were going to mass in the cafeteria of the local public school. (laughs) Eventually, they built a parish center first, and that was one of the things that you would do sometimes is after mass, you would have to put your chairs away because there was basketball later in that gym, (laughs) or you'd be helping set up. Some of those were parts of the, I don't know, just the hospitality ministry or the environmental preparation ministry that we were involved in at the time. Involve folding chairs and folding chair racks. Well, it's funny for me. I, I grew up in a similar age parish, and I was actually baptized in a high school auditorium. Okay, yep. <laughs> and I'm not really sure how I feel about that. Looking back on it now, our kids got to be baptized in the log chapel on, on campus in Notre Dame. Well, that's beautiful. But now I'm like, a high school auditorium. But sacrament, sacrament's right? <laughs> a sacrament. The grace is exactly. there. Did you notice, and you've been a part of other parishes mm-hmm. since then, what was unique about being with the generation of people who founded a parish? One of the great gifts, actually, it was because it was a relatively new parish, we were named after a relatively modern saint. Mm. So it was St. Maximilian Colby Parish. One of the great gifts was when I was in seventh grade, actually, the... So the story of St. Maximilian Kolbe is that he died in place of another man who had a family at Auschwitz. And the man whose life he saved did a tour of parishes that were named for St. Max in, I guess it would have been like 1993. So I was in seventh grade and I remember there was this, he was like 93 years old. He only spoke Polish. He spoke through interpreters. But yes, we, we actually got to meet the man whose life was saved and led to the canonization of our parish patron wow. it was yeah. a pretty cool opportunity <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah not 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 a, a chance that you would even dream about but exactly what a gift yeah even just amazing to hear his point of view of how what that moment was like because of mm-hmm. course later on it gets polished up you, mm-hmm. you know t- mm-hmm. to hear him talk about normally if someone stepped out of ranks and said i'd like to die in place of this man who has this family he wouldn't have had a chance to speak he would have been shot on the spot or just to hear him talk about the way that life was there as such a raw part of his story. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe part of it was being 12, 13 years old at the time. Yeah. I just, those kind of details struck me. Yeah. Yeah. It was a really yeah. interesting. And I think it's good for this podcast because sometimes holiness, when you read about the lives of the saints or it gets to the point where it's polished and we're retelling the story, mm-hmm. sometimes details are omitted or things like that. In real life, I think holiness is raw, it's messy, it's fits and starts, and it's confusing sometimes in the moment. You don't quite know what's going Mm -hmm. on in your life, or I'm sure even this man couldn't have foreseen like, oh, well, this saint will save your life, and then you'll go on to live into your 90s and be able to tell his story. I mean, he couldn't have imagined that either. So 
I take solace in the fact that holiness can be <laughs> can yes. be messy sometimes. <laughs> so as you were growing up and understanding your own gifts and your own skill set, how did that develop into thinking about college and, and what you might study? Yeah, in college, actually. So my undergraduate degree is in music. Mm-hmm. Um, I started piano lessons when I was like six years old, mm-hmm. joined the band and orchestra in middle school. I played the oboe. And actually, that was one of the first ministries that I really dove into. You know, I was an altar server growing up, but mm-hmm. I, in maybe high school, late middle school, joined one of the music ensembles at our parish and became involved in music ministry and was involved in it in my high school too. And so I think just seeing how this is a particular skill that I was able to hone and bring to the service mm-hmm. of the communities where I was where I was praying, just became a natural part of my life and Mm -hmm. a natural part of my rhythm, which is something that I've been able to keep with me then, you Mm -hmm. know, through my adulthood. Even going on, like you had mentioned, like I I did the ACE program, I taught in Catholic schools. Mm -hmm. You show up as the new sixth grade teacher and it turns out, and you're going to, you're going to canter weekly mass. And I think for my predecessor in ACE, that may have been a surprise, but it was pretty, it it was something that I was used to doing. So it wasn't something that took me by, it wasn't something new to me that Mm -hmm. I suddenly had to do. I remember in when I was in college, my mom encouraged me to think about how music directors at parishes, their entire job is evenings, weekends, and holidays. And right. a lot of times they're the only person who's there to lead the prayer of the congregation week in and week out. And sometimes they need to go somewhere on a weekend or they have yeah. something that's going on and they need subs. So she encouraged me actually to send a resume around. And that's when I started playing the piano for masses um, on a more formal basis. So I would sub for music directors. And that's something that I can continue to do today in my life as a stay-at-home mom where Mm -hmm. I don't have an ongoing employment. Sometimes, exactly. Right. right. So I, sometimes I will get an email from someone who says, I've going to be gone this weekend. I'm looking for a sub and I'm able to go in and I've visited a lot of parishes around here and I've gotten to play their pianos. So it's been kind of fun. (laughs) Yeah, that definitely all started when I was middle school, high school. And I found as a musician and especially music within liturgy, it has a real power Mm -hmm. to move people spiritually, emotionally, even more so sometimes than the words they hear or the gestures. But music just has, I don't know, there's this special element, like we Mm -hmm. talk about it. When you sing, you pray twice. Like There's like this doubling effect of it. When you were, when you had the chance to lead people in music, did you feel that sense of the Holy Spirit moving through you and in that ministry? Yeah, it's a lot of my musical training. Like my piano lessons were very focused on classical music. Mm -hmm. We're focused on performance. I did a lot of competitions. I did a lot of recitals. And the experience of playing for Mass is very different. The style of music is certainly very different. What your hands have to do. But also then, I don't know, I remember it being, you'd prepare for a a recital and you'd be preparing one piece for a long time. And then all of a sudden it's, okay, here's another week at church and there's 10 new songs. Mm -hmm. And you had to be ready. Also that the job of the accompanist is to be like a backbone and to be a conductor and to be a support. It is easier for people to sing when they, especially if they feel a little less comfortable singing, it's Mm -hmm. easier for people to sing when there is accompaniment. Sure. And the job of an accompanist is to follow the person who's singing. So I'm (laughs) in some ways leading the congregation and showing them where they're supposed to be singing along. And in some ways, when you have a cantor who maybe misses their entrance or something happens, my job is to wrap around and find them and make them feel comfortable, make them feel supported, make them feel like no one else is going to notice this mistake that's looming in their mind. Sure. And in some ways, that's a much bigger task. But in some ways, I'm not there to impress people. Mm -hmm. I'm there to support people's prayer. Mm -hmm. And so that can be a really liberating feeling, too. And I think the musicians in the congregation, Mm -hmm. oh, you hear when something is up. And as a very struggling pianist in my early days, like I'm always so impressed when the accompanist, whether it's piano or organ, does wrap around and helps that volunteer canter back in yep. and then oh and we're often we're often running again and mm-hmm. i hope oh, that was good it's <laughs> a skill to figure out yeah. i am right now i'm teaching piano lessons to a couple of my godchildren to my uh-huh. my nephew and my nieces and i have a niece who's really been interested in learning a lot of hymns a lot of the music that she hears at mass sure and it's led me to think okay what are the skills that are unique to that particular style of playing and some of it really is that you know you get when you're performing a piece, you can get really stuck on, oh, I messed up, I have to start over. 
And just the fact that's not an option when you're playing for mass. Right. And you have to find it. And it's like, you obviously don't want to make a lot of, don't want to make a lot of mistakes. When I was teaching at my A school, I led the choir, mm-hmm, you know, played the mm-hmm, piano for the sure. choir and used to talk to my kids too about the difference between a mirror and a window. And that when you are performing, there's this idea that you're the one who's meant to be seen. It's like looking in a mirror. Yeah. But when you are leading music for mass, it's more like being a window. People are supposed to see through this music and they're supposed to see God on the other side. Right. That they are helping people to have this experience of prayer. Yeah. And when we look through a window, ideally it's, we want all the spots to be gone. We want to see through it. But if there's a smudge on a window, we know it's there. We're human. Mm. People can still see God through us in that way. Yeah. I I love that. It's a beautiful image. As you came to St. Mary's and started to major in music, you know, what were some important memories of, of those days of as you were moving from your childhood faith and those values and establishing your own identity and understanding who you were as a person? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a good question. I think for a lot of people going to college, part of it is that nobody is any longer making you go to mass every week, right? right? So <laughs> I think realizing for myself some, like realizing for myself, this is important to me and this is something that I'm going to continue to do. Mm-hmm. In some ways, once I can, could step back and feel myself making that decision, it reinforces, okay, this is important to me. This is a part of, has become baked in part of the person that I am. Yeah. And this is a decision that I'm continuing to make. And that's one of those important adult steps that you take when it's like you're on your own mm-hmm. kind mm-hmm. of for the first time. I would be remiss if I didn't comment. Like, I spent my sophomore year in Rome. Yeah. So um, <laughs> there were a lot of beautiful works of art and beautiful churches. And yeah, going to confession in St. Peter's in the Vatican. There were some really great, powerful experiences. Yeah, seeing some of the seeing some of the art that has just survived centuries mm. and seeing these huge physical testimonies to the faith of people who lived centuries ago. We also had uh, campus ministers at the St. Mary's Rome program who Mm -hmm. were deacons studying at the North American Pontifical College in Rome. So these young men who were preparing for their ordination, they would do discussion groups with us. They would assist at mass at this little chapel that we had where, of course, you could go to mass at any of the six churches you passed on the way to the grocery store, but (laughs) you could also go to our little St. Mary's Chapel and have Mass in English with people who knew you and were preaching really specifically to our experiences being American students studying Mm -hmm. abroad. Mm -hmm. And I I remember one other realization I had that year. I remember having conversations with friends, probably that came out of some of those discussion groups we had with our campus ministers, and realizing when I had friends who were really struggling with some aspects of the faith or who were pushing against the church, I remember finding myself defending Certain practices, teachings, tenets, traditions, Mm -hmm. and again realizing to myself, wow, if I'm naturally taking this side on this discussion, this must be important to me. Yeah. This must be something that I've really internalized. I think I realized how important some of those aspects of my faith were to me, and that felt notable at the time. I remember just taking notice of, huh, I must really believe this. <laughs> Mom's not even here telling exactly. me I have to say this, but this is really something mm-hmm. that, it, yeah, it's important to me too. And probably was a real source of grace for the people who were having those very human doubts and wrestling with some of those things. Mm-hmm. Possibly. Did, I don't know how, I don't know how successful my <laughs> arguments were, but if they were important to me at the time. Yeah. So. Yeah. And did you also get a sense of like the global church there? Mm-hmm. I just remember that my my limited experiences in Rome, just getting the sense of, oh, this isn't just my American Catholicism mm-hmm. experience or even a Roman one, but this truly is a global church, especially yes. you get some of those open air masses at St. Peter's yes. and people from all over the world and they're chanting their music and whoa. Oh, just different, different languages. Even the feeling of going to mass regularly in a language that wasn't my own yeah. and being able to fully participate. Maybe that's something that for like pre-Vatican II Catholics to remember the Latin mass. I personally haven't been to a Latin mass, but I've been to Italian mass. I've been to French mass. I've (laughs) been to German mass. I've been to, yeah, just that realization of how universal my family at home is listening to these same readings. Mm -hmm. My family at home is saying these same prayers, is experiencing the same sacrament. Yeah, there's really something powerful to that. There's a connection there to the Eucharist and the Word of God, all those Mm -hmm. things. So as you began to realize, wow, my faith is really important to me Mm -hmm. in these tangible ways, did that change at all what you were thinking about doing 
professionally with your career and, and music and beyond that? Yeah, so that was my sophomore year. And I came back my freshman year, actually, I had entered as I was planning on being a math major and a music minor. Okay. And music started to take on, I started to see it as something I could study. I think right. I had always seen it growing up as something that it was a hobby. It was a pastime. It was certainly something that I could take with me through my life, but it wasn't going to be something that I was going to study and go into professionally. And I just really was drawn to my music studies. Mm -hmm. So came back and ended up kind of making the switch and ended up graduating with a music major and a Mm -hmm. math minor. And I was really drawn to theory and Mm -hmm. to that kind of analytical side of what is it about the music that we're playing? What are the nuts and bolts that make it sound the way it does? I also... I mean, it's kind of a, a truth. Anybody who's taken a music theory class knows that in a lot of programs, it's a weed-out course. You have a lot of people who come in and think, I'm going to I'm going to major in music. Right. And theory becomes the stumbling block that makes them switch majors. Yeah. And I really started finding myself thinking, this is a, a gift that I was given. Mm-hmm. This is a gift that a lot of my classmates and friends are given. And it seemed like a real shame to me that they would step back from that study of this talent that they had that they could bring into the world because of this one particular class. Mm. I think that's actually what started to draw me towards education. I was really interested in how it can't just be that some people can learn this and some just aren't cut out to. And I guess Mm -hmm. part of that is just the difference between high school and college teaching. You know, when you get to college, you start to specialize. And so you do, you are drawn to the things that you have a more natural ability to get through the class. But I really started to question like, okay, how do we teach this really well? What Mm -hmm. are the ways that we teach this so that it makes sense so that people can really see the power? And it's not just analyzing a rhythm or a chord progression, but it's you're looking at the wonder of like, why is this beautiful? Like, why? How do all these little notes work together to make this sound haunting or make this sound triumphant or Mm. make this sound soothing or whatever it is that the music has? It's made up of these these tiny parts. And mm-hmm. I don't know, wonder and awe is a gift of the Holy Spirit, right? Yeah. Like, and there's something to that in God's design. <laughs> God designed the universe in a way, and it's his ways are higher than our ways, thoughts are higher than our thoughts. But we're trying to we're trying to make sense of it. Yeah. And it seems to me music theory is a way to try to make sense of something that's sometimes beyond our understanding. Yes. Why something makes us feel the emotions that we weren't feeling before we started listening to the music, but all of a sudden, you know, we're into yeah. it in that way. What makes something a good melody? That's just one of the most, I feel like, ethereal questions. I also had, I particularly remember my piano instructor, like one of my professors at St. Mary's. I remember realizing that I didn't hear things the same way that he did. Mm. So he would play, listen to this chord, and then go to this chord, and oh my goodness, did you hear that the way that resolved? Yeah. And I just had this feeling that he was hearing something in there that I hadn't been given the gift of hearing yet. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I remember suddenly feeling like this really strong desire to, I I remember wanting as a, an undergraduate music student, I had never been moved to tears by a piece of music. And I remember seeing like a friend who was listening to this choir and all of a sudden her eyes were like welling over. Mm -hmm. And I thought, Oh my gosh, I want that. I want that feeling. And again, my piano teacher, I feel like he, there was something that he was hearing that was like this depth um, that he was deeply appreciating. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, maybe theory was like some part of trying to really pick apart and look at all those little things. And in some ways, I don't know, when you pick it apart too much, you you destroy the magic, right? <laughs> but they, they go both ways. I don't yeah. know. So yeah, I think that sense of wonder came apart. And then really wondering, okay, so how do we keep people, how do I help other people to realize this is something amazing? Like, yeah. how do I let them into how all these pieces are working together so that they can pass theory three and <laughs> persevere and persevere and get <laughs> yeah. the degree and go on and teach music, whatever it is yeah. that they're, yeah. Yeah. Well, of course, people, you find this in, in regular classrooms, even grade school classrooms. Mm-hmm. People come in with different gifts and they can even have the same classroom experience, but have different outcomes. And I've found that even more so in college, people are coming from across the country, sometimes across the world. They have wildly different experiences mm-hmm. and all of a sudden they're encountering this challenge for the first time. So you mentioned that sort of piqued your interest in education. Mm-hmm. So how did you evolve to the point where you said, I want to pursue education yeah. and, and join the ACE program? So my senior year in college, I was actually applying to PhD programs in music theory. Okay. And I was really uh, stymied by this decision. I remember sitting down with my mom and she had... 
want, maybe it was over Christmas break. We were going to do some preliminary decision making. Um, <laughs> she made like a chart on a piece of paper and had all of my, the different programs I was looking to written across the top and a whole bunch of different aspects of them down the side. Where would I be living? What would I need a car? Or would I be in a big city? Sure. Would I, what would the financial package look like? And then she also, at that point, persuaded me. When I was a senior in high in college, my brother was a senior in high school. Okay. And his theology teacher that year was an ACE graduate. So mm. he had been in ACE 1, the first ever ACE class. Okay. And he, my mom just thought that he was a great teacher. Yeah. And she, this was the first that she had heard of this program. I had known one or two people at St. Mary's who had gone on and done ACE. I right. didn't really know what that meant. Yeah. But she really started encouraging me to look into it. And that day that we were sitting down with the chart, she also added ACE because I was also, she convinced me to put together an ACE application sure. as well. And I don't know, for, for people who don't, aren't super familiar with ACE, part of it is that they, they place you in a Catholic school in a community somewhere around the country. Yeah. You're placed with other teachers who are also teaching in Catholic schools in that city. You live in a house together, share rent together, live in intentional faith-based community sure. together. You're, you eat dinner together. You plan a, a prayer life with each other, which really does a lot to support those early, very difficult first yeah, years of first teaching. Year teaching yeah. Yeah. So we were planning, we were doing this chart, talking about like, where will you live? And she would ask me like, okay, we, we had a tricolored highlighter. If there was a, a pink and a yellow and a green, and it was like <laughs> okay. red light, yellow light, green light. Right. For each kind of factor on our chart, does this feel like a red light? Does this feel like, oh, I really don't like this? Or does this feel like this is something that I would really like? Yeah. And for some reason, the fact that ace that I didn't know where I would be and that I didn't know who I would be with. For some reason, I started to feel like that was really appealing. Mm. And I think it was this sense dawning that I was going to be sent where I needed to be yeah. and that somehow God was going to make it work out yeah. for me there. I absolutely feel like that is 100% the case of what happened. Yeah. But that conversation started drawing me away from these PhD programs. And I really started seriously considering ace. Mm. And gradually then I applied, I interviewed. I was like, second semester senior year ended up deciding I was placed in Nashville I'm at a K through eight grade school one class per grade I taught middle school math and language arts so I went from the math major right. <laughs> switched to the music and then I ended up back I had enough math credits that I could teach middle school math and okay. be licensed in it yeah ended up back there and ended yeah. up I think I really I knew I wanted to learn how to teach mm -hmm. and I knew that a lot of people who were in academia would talk about how they if they taught at the college level they were really prepared in their content, but I don't know how much you really get into pedagogy yeah. and you really get into how the brain learns, mm. how the student learns, how the student of this particular age, whether it be a 12 year old versus a 22 year old, mm. how, how does their brain process and retain and integrate new knowledge? I just found myself really wanting to learn how to teach. Yeah. I thought at the time that I would go teach for a couple years get my education degree, and then go back to music theory. Okay. That did not happen. It did not happen. There, but for the grace of God, go okay. I. I'm very glad that I don't have a PhD in music theory right now. Well, I know, I mean, having friends who have gone through ACE, that's that's a, a big question is after your couple years of education and teaching are, are complete, there's another discernment moment yep. there to say, am I going to go and do something entirely different? Uh -huh. Am I going to keep teaching but somewhere else? Or am I going to te keep teaching where I am? And all, all those outcomes I've I've heard people yep. uh, choose. So what was it like for you? I stayed at my school. Yeah. I stayed there for an additional three years. I will say it's actually probably significant that as a teacher you stay one year at a time. Yeah. So I didn't, I really stayed for another one year and then another one year and then another one okay, year. So right, I was right. really, I was at my school for a total of five years. <laughs> Loved it. I really thought of the school where I taught as another alma mater. I felt like mm -hmm. I learned how to love education there. I felt teaching was the first time that my stress was for someone other than me, mm. if that makes sense. For the first time, if I didn't get my work done someone else was going to suffer for yeah. it. Realizing how your students depend on you, realizing you are thrown in there and you are figuring out how you're going to do this right now. Yeah. It was a very new experience. Mm. And yeah, I just, I felt like I learned a ton from the other teachers and from, I had a wonderful principal. There were some amazing families mm. at that school, some families that I'm, thanks to social media, still kind of can right. follow along today. <laughs> All my students are like in their, I don't know, 
30s right. now. <laughs> you know, I see them having uh, weddings and baby showers and hey, wait a minute. what their how, jobs how that are now, yeah. how they're, what yeah. they're getting into, yeah. <laughs> That's fun. Mm-hmm. It foreshadows parenthood a little bit in the sense of if I'm not at my best or if I'm not doing all that I can to have my life in order, then somebody else is going to suffer or is, is, uh, is going to succeed right. um, in, in, in some ways, especially in those early years. So we'll definitely get to that. But what happened towards the end of that your time in Nashville? What was the next step for you? I was, I, every year I wondered, is this, what, what am I going to do next year? Am I going to stay? Am I going to teach for another year? Yeah. My fifth year at my school, actually, I got a call from some people in Ace administration, and they were mm-hmm. looking for a new, they had some position turnover in what was then the Ace Fellowship, now mm-hmm. it's known as Ace Advocates, mm-hmm. the alumni, alumni and friends arm of Ace. Hey, so, we like that. Yes. <laughs> uh, so I went on to work for Ace Fellowship, again, yeah. became Ace Advocates while I was there. But basically it was, we were trying to keep our graduates engaged in the mission of Catholic education. Yeah. So it was a lot of... Kind of adult formation, adult mm. education. That's where I really started to learn about, okay, how do adults who are in the working world, how do they learn? Mm. We would do a lot of programming for, we had these regions around the country. We were trying to encourage our graduates who were found in pockets of cities around, around the country to support Catholic schools in need in their, in their areas to really discern the needs and to see, okay, well, what can I do mm-hmm. given the gifts that... I have as a leader, given the gifts that kind of the interested people, you know, who, my volunteers around me, like given what they can do and what energy they have, what are the ways that we can best make a difference, was really interested in supporting teachers and continuing to grow professionally. You have this idea, you're, you're done with your master's program and kind of now what? And one of the hard things about education as a profession is that, you know, we were looking a lot at this uh, career ladder, career trajectory kind of mm-hmm. thing that... For a lot of teachers, they would start to see, okay, if I'm going to continue to grow professionally, that means either going into administration or going on to get an academic degree, yeah. which usually it takes you out of the classroom, right? right. So if yeah. what you're really drawn to is making a difference day to day in the lives of students, I started looking a lot at, okay, so how do we, how do you go from being, getting a master's in education to being a master teacher? Like what mm. is a great teacher? Yeah. We would do retreats for spiritual spiritual retreats on a variety of kind of themes that we would take around the country, or eventually we started packaging them as a video sets, trying to say, get your regional community, get the teachers who are around you, and offer them this weekend of reflection and yeah. prayer. What resources can we give you to facilitate that? So we would work on those kind of things. So yeah, that became my job for the next five years, okay. trying to just keep people engaged in that mission. Yeah, and I'm sure this this whole time... It's like you're helping people discern their vocations mm-hmm. and you're discerning your own right. in terms of all these steps to take and where God might be calling you. And as I understand, during that five years, you found God calling you to marriage as well. Mm-hmm. So tell us about how you met your husband and, and what that was like. Yeah, so actually, it was an ACE connection. So my my husband's brother was in the ACE class ahead of me mm-hmm. and his wife used to work for the program as well. And they were really involved in our South Bend regional community. I remember I, they used to have a group for young married couples, just spiritual group, discussion group. Sure. And I used to volunteer to watch their young kids during that time. <laughs> and so actually that's how I got to know my, my now nephew, who's now in high school when he was like a year and a half old and his parents were up at their meeting and I would get to play with the kids. So they, after having gotten to know them, they decided that I needed to meet his brother. And mm-hmm. so they introduced me to my husband, Brian. Brian was a 2006 grad of Notre Dame and did the MSA in 2007 and now is an accountant for mm-hmm. the university. And yes. so both of us were working there. We were kind of post-grad a few years and yeah, introduced by his family and rest is history. We got married the next year. and That's great. Yeah. And there's certain aspects of your life where it's like, yeah, this is just kind of how I saw my life going, and then other times they're like, well, this was a bit of a detour or, or a surprise. Up to that point, were, were things clipping along as you thought, or where did you see kind of God's hand in your life? Yeah, you know, I think so. I think like a lot of singles in their mid-20s, I kind of wondered a lot. You know, I really, I wanted to be married. I mm-hmm. really wanted a family and hoped that that would happen for me. And you certainly go through the ups and downs of wondering if it will. Mm-hmm. So then it was a 
a great gift when I met my husband, felt really had, you know, little moments over the time that we were getting to know each other. Oh, yeah, this is really, this is going to go somewhere. This is the person that God is calling me to love. And we, you know, so we were married for married for about a year before we found out our oldest son was coming along. Mm-hmm. He was born in April of 2013. Okay. And at that point, I kind of transitioned out of working full-time for Ace and kind of thought, you know, okay, I have this baby now. I was enjoying getting to know him and figuring out the new rhythms of our life. But when you ask about things happening that aren't what you expect, we started realizing during Sam's infancy that he was missing some milestones. You know, we were sent to some different specialists, kind of trying to figure out, okay, this isn't quite what this is supposed to look like. It's funny for me, looking back, I can look at videos now and see details that I couldn't see at the time. Because, of course, this was my first baby. Yeah. You know, like New learning how to <laughs> help a person learn to sleep, learning right. how to help a person learn to eat. These are difficult things for all new yeah. parents. But we found out, we Sam had a brain MRI when he was about seven months old. And we found that he had a thin corpus callosum. So the, okay. the white matter that connects the two hemispheres of the brain was thin. It kind of explained some things, but... You know, really the gift at that time was that we also got into our early intervention program and started working with some great therapists who came to our house each week. And, you know, the early intervention model is really one of parent education. Mm -hmm. And for me, I felt like that was a huge gift. So I had these people who were helping me learn what I was seeing as Mm -hmm. I looked at my little boy learned what I was seeing with each one of his skills, you know, what's really going on within his muscles and within his neurology as he has all these different experiences of infancy and integrates all that within his brain. And, you know, what would we normally expect him to do next? And what are some things that we can do to to help him learn those skills? And as someone who, I don't know, one of the challenges of parenthood is that, especially if you are at home with your kids, is that kind of academic, intellectual world of work Mm -hmm is very different. So it, I loved being able to learn all of that mm-hmm. alongside, like, as I'm watching this. Again, it gets back to that, what we were talking about before with music, right? Like, that gift of wonder. Like, yeah. I think they showed me all these little intricacies of what I was looking at, and I started to, you know, wow, that's really amazing. Show yeah. me more. Show yeah. me how I can help him. <laughs> so when Sam was just about two, our second child was born, our daughter Nora, she looked totally different from him mm. as a baby. Some of the stuff that we noticed with Sam first was that he didn't make a lot of eye contact. He didn't really track objects. And as a newborn, Nora would have staring contests with you. So yeah. it was like she looked completely different. She got rolled over onto her stomach by about two months old because she was just watching everything that her older brother did. Mm. So we kind of thought, okay, you know, we, again, completely expected a normal trajectory of, you know, typical developmental milestones mm-hmm. with her. We found out when she was about a year old, Sam was just about three, because again, she was born just before he turned two. So he was aging out of the early intervention program, transitioning into the school system. And at that point, you know, we had had these three therapists in our home every single week for her entire first year. Sure. And kind of there weren't really any alarm bells until, you know, she got to a year old and she was still army crawling. And we kind of thought, you know, she's probably just, she's, looking at the model she has in her older brother. She's copying a lot of his movements. Sure. And they said, you know, see if she qualifies for First Steps too. First Steps is Indiana's name for our birth to three program. Mm -hmm. And at that point, she qualified. We kind of thought she was just going to need a little nudge. And she went from not crawling to crawling in one physical therapy session. Mm. (laughs) She went from crawling to pulling to a stand, cruising along furniture, pushing a push toy within like a couple of months. And we thought, okay, yeah, she's going to take off walking any day now. Mm-hmm. And she didn't. Mm. She just kind of got stuck there. And we just kept thinking, okay, there is something that we're missing here. We, oh, around that time moved. We we, we wanted to move into a different uh, school district where we knew that uh, inclusive classrooms were going to mm-hmm. be the norm. Mm-hmm. That, that was another kind of surprise for me, certainly with my ACE background. And uh, I always thought my kids would go to Catholic schools. I had gone to public school myself up until seventh grade. Our parish entered into a consolidation and Mm -hmm. we all switched into Catholic school at the same year then. But so I'd had experience in public schools, but all of my teaching experience was in Catholic schools. And I had really latched onto this mission of an education in the heart and the mind. And you make God known, loved and served through the work that you do. But all of a sudden it was like, okay, I, we are going to go to the school where we live. 
Yeah. And at that point for Sam, I mean, I was told when he was four years old that he would be placed in a life skills kindergarten classroom, that that would be 83% special education, 17% inclusion. And Mm -hmm. that 17% would include art, gym, and shared hallways. Okay. And that felt like, okay, my kid is going to get put in a box and we're going to put a lid on this box. And, you know, how do you call it? He's not a part of the community if it's just that they're sharing the hallways. Like what some other class walks past him and stares at him while they're on their way to what they're doing that he's not a part of. I don't know. I couldn't. We needed to move. So we Mm. we just moved into another district where inclusion was their kind of norm. And it worked out well then because our family was also growing. We found out that our, our third child was on the way. Yeah. In the second half of that pregnancy, we ended up doing an MRI with Nora. We found that she had a completely different brain scan than mm. Sam had. So her corpus callosum was one of the first right. things I saw when I, I'm now looking at this brain MRI that previously was just a nice picture. And I'm like, oh, I see it. But she had, a, it's called a Chiari malformation where your the, the base of your cerebellum is herniated into the top of your spinal column. So there was some pressure on part of her brain. Yeah. So when she was two and a half, she had surgery to release some of that pressure. Mm. And we kind of thought at this point, okay, you know, yes, we have another baby on the way. Yes, we have two kids who are not hitting their developmental milestones, but it looks like it's for two completely different reasons. Yeah. So Nora had her surgery. She continued to learn and grow. She started walking shortly before her third birthday. And then we had our daughter Esme. And I remember holding this baby and feeling like I have had this baby before. Mm. She reminded me so much of Sam, just in mannerisms and temperament. And of course, some of that is that, you know, they're brother and sister like in some ways they're going to have similarities but I think you just kind of develop that intuition that something is off here you know I had lots of people telling me that I was just paranoid it had been my only experience of parenting was you know not seeing some of those milestones that you expect to see but gradually we got her into early intervention just kind of watching her her growth and her presentation just Mm -hmm. you know what she looked like how she moved how what how she interacted. And eventually now that we had three kids, all of whom were not hitting milestones at the time that we would be expecting them to, all of whom were having some pretty significant challenges. I mean, at this point I had, Nora was walking, my other two were not. None of my kids speak. And they all have some pretty significant like feeding and fine motor challenges. Mm -hmm. Finally, they were like, you know what? We can justify to insurance genetic testing. Yeah. So they tracked Sam's whole genome. They found two variants on one particular gene, one that they tracked to my husband, one that they tracked to me. They said, we think this is significant. We'd like to do targeted testing on the two girls. So they tested both of our girls, found that both of them had the exact same two markers. Wow. We went to see a geneticist. It's interesting when you see a geneticist, they have like this mental catalog of every single physical feature. They like go head to toe and they notice like this angle of the eyes and the size of the earlobes and this wrinkle in your palm and they they catalog everything. They looked at the way that our kids moved. They looked at the way that their eyes tracked things. They looked at everything and gave us this diagnosis of, my kids have a rare form of a very large category of neuromotor disorders. So Mm. the family is called called hereditary spastic paraplegia. There's like 90 different forms and my kids have this one particular considered a complicated form and that it doesn't only affect your lower limbs, but global symptoms. So now we had a name. We knew, strangely and unexpectedly enough, that it's recessive. So we had, you know, we had flipped two coins three times and ended up with six heads. So all three of our kids happened to have both variants. Mm -hmm. We also knew that all three of them developed and looked and learned differently from each other. So, Mm. you know, in some ways it's like, you know, yeah, you put a you put a name on something, but then you go back to the classroom or you go back to the therapy clinic and you go back to home and mm. you say, these are my kids' strengths and these are the challenges that we're, these are the things we're trying to help them learn. Yeah. How do we use their strengths to help them learn those next steps? And that's what we have been doing all along. Sure, you know, at sure. this point. doesn't change that much. It's exactly. just you like keep going. Keep going. Helping them with what they need. Yeah. How did this all affect your marriage and your mm-hmm. faith? How did you and Brian support each other? How did you pray kind of carrying this cross with each other? Yeah, you know, I cannot imagine being in this life with anyone other than him. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad that I have him. I think that we reinforce each other when you talk about just, you know, strengths and skills and weaknesses and 
I don't know. I think that we, I like to hope that we bring out the best in each other and that we help each other be the parents that we need to be for our kids. I'm kind of surprised to say, and I feel really grateful that somehow I have not had like a crisis of faith in Mm -hmm. this. I know that some people would see like, my children are all struggling. Yeah. How can God let this happen? Sure. You know, or else you get really into the sappy, saccharine, oh, these precious angels are here to make us all better people, which also is (laughs) not, that denies their humanity. You know, like that's not the experience of like living with these you know, they're my kids. I've, I've gotten to know them since they were newborns. I can't imagine them being any different. I, yes, would I, would I love to take away their struggles? Of course. But I think I've also learned that disability is an important, like a natural and important part of human diversity. Mm-hmm. Like it's just part of how this world is full of all different people mm-hmm. and how we're all called to be interdependent. And, mm-hmm. you know, I've learned a lot about like you look at you know, we have a culture that values independence above everything else when really none of us are fully independent. You yeah. know, we all live in and need and support and lean on and are called to sacrifice for each other. Mm-hmm. And so our family has just kind of, I don't know, shown up to me as like this microcosm of like that call. This is what we're meant to do. We don't design, the, none of us have the, you know, every kid is going to throw you for a loop in some way. Yeah. There's not a single parent who isn't like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that. My son, my daughter did this completely different thing than I ever would have been expected, you know, or everybody has challenges. This happens to be what it looks like for us. Mm-hmm. You know, I think back to kids who I taught. Yeah, I was in a I was in a small Catholic school. We didn't have kids who had the, the same kind of challenges that my kids did. We sure. didn't have kids with IEPs. But we certainly had kids with learning differences. Mm-hmm. You know, we had kids who had you know, a variety of challenges. And I think I would definitely be a different teacher now if I could go back with the background of having been my kids' parents. Mm -hmm. At the same time, you know, I went into meetings at schools and I'm really glad that I had the experience of being a teacher and knowing what it was like to see kids in context. As a parent, your job is to see that kid as the only one who's you know, as not the only one, but the most important kid in that classroom. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. As a teacher, your job is to see no one kid as the most important mm-hmm, kid in the classroom. Mm-hmm. So I think that having that balance of experiences is an important part of how I have interactions with my kids, teachers in schools now. I hope so. I mm-hmm, hope that it mm-hmm. I hope that it helps me go into those discussions with more empathy and understanding and sure. Realism. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You, you've just seen more life, and your, exactly. your understanding grows in that. In terms of the all crosses that everybody carries, yeah. that, that looks different, but that we're all that we're all dealing with something, and mm-hmm. to suffer together though is a real help. So, speaking of community, community of faith, you know, one one desire that you have as a parent is, is the desire to pass along the faith. Mm-hmm. It's faith that you received. You talked about. You know, how in college you were kind of an apologist and yeah. and, and defending the faith and, and sharing the faith with others. How has that been with your kids, with their disabilities, to help them cultivate that faith or to be supported by a community of faith? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that part of getting to know my kids is realizing how they learn because everybody, everybody learns, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody, and it's... We learn through our experiences. We learn through our, you know, sensory systems. We learn through discussions. We learn through habits. We learn through routines. We learn through books. We learn through songs. Like there's just all these different, I look at my kids and I think, how are they soaking up what I see them doing next? You know, Mm -hmm. I have seen them growing. I have seen them doing something one day that I hadn't seen them doing before. And so I think that then I can't help but think, okay, so then how do I help them know God and know how much God loves them. I think it struck me pretty early on that like one of the most important things for a parent who's wants their child to grow in faith is that we have to believe in the possibility of unconditional love. Mm -hmm. And so I think that giving my children the opportunity to feel loved exactly as they are and to know that there's nothing that they can possibly do that would ever make me stop loving them. Like that is one of the most important things that I have to do as a parent. And that's like that in my mind that's the first thing that they have to know about about god Mm -hmm. it's just that Mm -hmm. god is love and that god has loved them into being god saw the world and knew that our world needed people who were exactly like them Mm. that they're an important part of 
they're an important part of our world and our yeah. community and our church. I also see how they learned through their environment and learned through the way that we would do things each day, learn mm-hmm. through the way that they interact. And I think I realized the importance of ritual there. Being very comfortable, you know, it was important that we get them to church and that we not have hiatuses, that we not, you know, that, that become a very regular part of their experience. Yeah. That, that church becomes somewhere that they are comfortable and familiar, you know, that they've had a chance to see everything, mm-hmm. that they have a chance to hear everything. My kids, unsurprisingly, are very drawn to songs. They're drawn mm-hmm. to instruments. They're drawn to music. So seeing the songs that they, my daughter Nora loved the Alleluia really early on. Mm-hmm. And so making sure that, you know, we played YouTube videos of the Alleluia at home <laughs> and that she, that became something that she would you know recognize really readily mm-hmm. was important. Finding rituals of prayer as a family and realizing that if our kids were squirrely and or upset, or they were struggling to make it through mass, if they were struggling to make it through a decade of the rosary at home, whatever it is, having the faith that like God was communicating with them in that in their way. Yeah. I guess at some point, just being told it would be really, it would have, be a lot of hubris on my part to believe that I could mess up their relationship with God, mm-hmm. or to believe that it's all on me. Sure, sure. As their mom, I'm called to have a really important role in that process, but I believe that. For as much as I love my kids, God loves them more than I do. And God wants them in that relationship even more than I want it for them. Mm -hmm. And so, and I just don't believe that God's going to let me mess that up. Yeah. Just kind of a radical trust in God's grace, uh, overcoming any shortcomings that, that we all have as parents. So, you know, we've had a couple experiences with catechesis of the Good Shepherd. Mm -hmm. We have had some really, both at the parish that we were at before we moved and then also our current parish Mm -hmm. now, both parishes have welcomed our kids to kind of experience catechesis and the atrium, which is for Mm -hmm. anyone not familiar with catechesis of the Good Shepherd, the name (laughs) for the classroom where they are. In, you know, I, I would be there with them and help them to experience it however they could. But one of the central tenets of that approach to catechesis is that children already have a relationship with God. It's Mm. not about giving them this relationship. It's about nurturing the relationship that's already there and helping them to encounter God through real experiences with ritual and the liturgy and prayer and scripture. Nothing is watered down. Everything is real. And I saw my kids growing in some of those ways. And Mm. that idea that like, okay, God is communicating with them. My job is to help nurture that. Yeah. So I think I kind of looked for ways. So. Well, that's, that's very encouraging to hear because I, I'm sure there have been times in the past, both in society and the church, where people may have been put into a box and, mm-hmm. and thought, well, they're not capable of yeah. having a relationship with God. But, of course, we know that not to be true. And, and there's a that's intrinsic dignity that everyone has mm-hmm. and, and, and everyone deserves a chance to have that deep relationship with God, however they're able to. Now, we've talked about three of your kids. I know that you have four, though. We do. (laughs) Was that scary? I mean, you have this understanding now more of your three kids and the challenges that they had in this genetic diagnosis. What was that like to to be vulnerable and to trust God in the decision to have another child? So I think early on, a lot of our my concerns were logistic, honestly. <laughs> I was just overwhelmed. And it was kind of like, okay, we have another baby on the way. This new life is there, being nurtured, moving right along, right. growing and, and developing and changing. And, you know, I, one of my first things was at that time, Sam was eight, and I, we were still carrying him up and down the stairs. Mm. And I remember thinking, I'm not going to be able to get to 40 weeks of a pregnancy and carry my eight-year-old up yeah. and down the stairs. <laughs> we have to work on that. I had yeah. to figure out where we were going to put another baby in our car. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny how sometimes those, like, really mundane logistic elements of life are the first things that you're like, where am I physically going to put this other child? Yeah. You know, I had two kids who were not walking. You know, Sam could use a walker, but needed a lot of support with mm-hmm. that. One who was, but wasn't necessarily always stopping when I wanted her to, you yeah, know, like yeah. parking lots can be scary places. Yeah. And then I think also we knew that we had a one in four chance of having a fourth baby with the same diagnosis, Mm -hmm. depending on how you think of it, that's either a huge 75% chance that she won't or a huge 25% chance that she will. I remember thinking I wasn't sure which one would be easier. Mm. In some ways, this was the parenting life that I knew. Like I knew how to 
I knew how to get into the early intervention program. I knew how to find the right specialist. At this point, I even knew I felt comfortable. You know, one of the challenges can even just be whether or not you need another doctor. You know, Mm. I've felt comfortable saying, no, I don't think we need another specialist without worrying that people were going to assume that I didn't care about my kid at that point. I had navigated a lot of these kind of, I I knew how to prioritize things, I felt like. And in some ways it was like, okay, you know, she could be born. I didn't, I I certainly didn't know how do you, how do you raise a a good person who's in this, like, she has a life like nobody else. Mm -hmm. I mean, probably not like nobody else, but like, you know, to have three older siblings who all are who all have significant challenges, who all interact with the world in a very atypical way. She was just going to grow up with a very different set of experiences. Certainly Mm -hmm. nothing like what I had growing up. So I don't know. I mean, I guess that goes, you know, radical faith, right? Of just being like, okay, show me how to do this. We did find out we could do the same targeted testing. Mm -hmm. You know, we found out that she inherited neither Mm. variant. And so certainly life with her has been very different than it was with our older three, partly in that I think I've realized how much stuff you normally don't have to teach kids. Yeah, they just naturally they just pick stuff go through up. the steps. Yeah, I was hyper aware of when every milestone should take place. Hmm. I was watching her like a hawk. <laughs> I had a lot of, you know, again, all my other kids are in regular therapies. So I sure as heck am talking to these, you know, people who I now know and like have a personal relationship with. It's not like it's just, you know, professional transactions. Mm -hmm. Like they know our family, they support our family. These are people who've become really important to us. And I'd be like, you know, can you just take a look? Like, is this what you'd expect? And I'm like, yeah, you know, that's, (laughs) but yeah, I, I think one of the things that I've come to realize is just, there are things that I think I've I think I'm pretty good at in terms of interacting with my other kids and playing with them and supporting them and giving them the experiences that they need to have. Like, I think I've learned how to do a lot of that. I did not realize how much of it was cognitively effortful. Mm. I remember going to a grocery store with Joanna, my youngest, one time and walking out and realizing that I had just chatted to her the entire time we were there without thinking about it. And that that, of course, you know, that interaction and the like give and take and like showing her things and the all that language Mm -hmm. is something that every kid needs and something that I know like intellectually, you know, that my other kids need. And I make it a point to give it to them. But it was not work. Mm. And I just realized like, oh, my gosh, you're going to get things from me that are so easy that are going to come naturally. I don't know. It just almost didn't seem fair that it was going to be so much easier to give to one who already had the privilege of not having to push a boulder up the hill mm-hmm. just to get to the same spot. I don't mm-hmm. know. You know, you just can't help but look and think like, okay, each one of my kids is a complete individual. Sure. They all are going to need different things. They all are going to have a different relationship with me. They're all going to have a different relationship with each other. But yeah, I, it, it's just been eye opening yeah. to realize just like, I think a lot of people have told me like, oh, you know, you work really hard as a mom before. And I would always have said like, Every kid is going to throw you for a loop in some ways. There are things that are harder for us. There are things that are easier for us. A lot of that. This is just what family life looks like for us. I think in some ways it was maybe, I don't know if validating is a horrible word to use, but Mm -hmm. that to realize like, okay, no, we have, we have worked hard to do this. Sure. And certainly we continue to do so. And Well, and sometimes when you're in the thick of it, like you don't even realize you just get used to whatever your present reality is. And sometimes it's either that change, either kids growing to the next phase Mm -hmm. of life or getting out of diapers or starting to drive themselves in a car, whatever the milestones are. Or sometimes it's this this contrast Mm -hmm. of a quote unquote more normal childhood Mm -hmm. that all of a sudden you take a look around and be like, oh, wow, we really, we've been in the thick of it for a while here. Yeah. And And I think there is a sense when you, talk about holiness and you uh, even think about the lives of the saints that if if you were to have met them in the midst of whatever they were doing they may not have been able to say like oh well i'm pursuing holiness here but Mm -hmm. our distance from it or our admiration of their lives later it's it's very clear wow this is this is a holy person this is a holy life so as we as we conclude here, I do want to touch on holiness. Who have been some of the models of holiness for you that you've really anchored your life to as you've encountered some of the things you have? Yeah. Well, the school that I 
taught at in Nashville is named for St. Anne, so mm-hmm. Mother of Mary. Yeah. And I remember, I guess as a teacher then, too, just being struck by, like, the what it must have been like to parent a child <laughs> who did not have original sin. Right, yeah. Um, Talk about a unique child. <laughs> exactly. But also to be entrusted without realizing it with this, I don't, you know, I don't know all of the, the details of what tradition would hold in terms mm-hmm. of what St. Anne knew and what she sure, didn't. Sure, but like, sure. you know, to prepare a path for the incarnation, the unique way that she did. I don't mm-hmm. know, once removed from, you know, I think Mary is held up, certainly. Sure. And, necessarily as right. a model th- for us, you know, throughout growing up as a little Catholic girl. St. Anne was a unique lens through which to look at that. And I found that as I was teaching and kind mm. of moving on. And she's continued to be an important model. But then actually one of the devotions that I felt drawn to the more and more I got into being a parent of kids with disabilities was the Seven Sorrows of Mary mm. and the Seven Sorrows Rosary, the Seven Sorrows Chaplet. And what I found is I kind of tried that prayer out, tried to learn, okay, how do I, how do, how do we pray this? How does this work? That each one of these experiences of Mary's life kind of reminded me of parents whose, particularly moms, whose story is very different from mine, who worry for their child in a very different way, mm. despite the fact that their story is completely different. You know, you can think of like the prophecy of Simeon being analogous in some ways to getting an early diagnosis. Yeah. You know, that here's something that uh, you are, you know, a sword will pierce your heart, mm. your soul. That's pretty vague. Yeah. But you know that something <laughs> is, you know, you know that there will be sorrows in your life. There will be great joys in your life. And I think we all kind of know that getting into parenthood, but mm. to have it take place in a certain time and place because someone has given you this bit of language to go mm-hmm. with it. You know, I thought of it through that. But then you look at, like, the flight into Egypt, and I can't think of parents who's, you know, you think of, like, the the immigrant parent who are desperate to get their child out of a situation where they feel like their child's life and their future are in danger. Mm -hmm. You know, you think of, like, the body of Jesus being placed in Mary's arms and parents who have lost a child, which Mm -hmm. I have not. You know, one... Thanks be to God, my children are not really considered medically fragile. Mm. You know, all of their challenges have been developmental for the most part. You know, I'm not a parent whose child had a cancer diagnosis or, you know, was in a horrific accident. My kids are living a a life of growth. Like everything's been on the way up. Mm. You know, they haven't had a huge setback Mm -hmm. they've had to deal Mm -hmm. with. They've had challenges developmentally, but their life has all been moving forward. So I think like in some ways... That devotion of the seven sorrows really helped me to feel like I was in a community of like other moms who for whom I could offer up the challenges of my life. I was glad to learn of that one. Mm-hmm. And then I think the other passage is that I've I've had a new a new realization. Kind of, I guess a new there's been a new significance in my life of the washing of the feet at yeah. the Last Supper yeah. and realizing that like taking care of this very bodily need as a, a servant who doesn't see it as someone, oh, I'm being put out having to do this very human, very earthly task in order to care for your body. There's a quote at that point in, in the gospel that Jesus says, what I'm doing right now, you do not understand, but one day you will understand. Mm. And I think that that, I try to hold on to that as a source of hope that I don't have to know. Yeah, Like God's got the bigger picture. You know, it's like when you have a toddler who's sobbing because you had to leave the park when you know you're leaving the park because grandma and grandpa are staying for a week and they're there when we get home. God knows what the big picture is. God desires my happiness and God desires my children's happiness and our sanctity. And so even when I can't see it and even when like some exact moment right now just feels very difficult and dirty and hard and lots of suffering is, Mm -hmm. you know, a, a part of this, this five minutes. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, d- I have to trust that there's a perspective that is held by someone who loves me more deeply than I can understand. Yeah. So. Well, it's, it's beautiful. This theme of radical trust just mm-hmm. keeps circling back to your story. This, you know, the trust mm-hmm. to go to the ACE program when mm-hmm. you thought things yeah. might not be that way. You know, the trust in your marriage to Brian and yeah, for better, for worse, What mm-hmm. we don't know what that means. And then just this trust in God's love for your children, even despite their challenges and despite your own shortcomings that we all have. And I think that's such a marker of 
the, this path to holiness, that we know we're not doing this alone and that we're trusting God throughout it. So thank you, Megan, for Absolutely. your witness, for your for giving us that witness of trust and encouraging us, even though the crosses that our listeners have are going to be different than yours. I think your story will really resonate with them to place that radical trust in God and know that the outcome long term is going to be for the good and, and for our eternal happiness. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. It was a real pleasure. Well, that concludes this episode of Everyday Holiness. If you like the episode, we encourage you to share it with others, to rate it on the podcast of your choosing, and to listen to other episodes, along with subscribing to our Faith ND Daily Gospel Reflection at faith.nd.edu slash sign up. We'll see you there and on future episodes of the podcast. Until then, God bless you. Mm-hmm.